Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. If you enjoy the sustainability agenda, consider joining the Deep Transformation Network, an online global community for people who recognize that our civilization is in existential crisis and who want to engage with others in facilitating a deep transformation toward a life-affirming future on a regenerated Earth. The network, which is over 3,000 people worldwide, offers a nurturing place for ideas, practices and approaches for civilizational transformation, as well as inspiring and nourishing place to cultivate intentional community. Find it at www.deeptransformation.network. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Angel Shu to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Angel is an American climatologist and environmental scientist. She's Assistant Professor of Public Policy and Environment, Energy and Ecology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She's the founder and head of the Data Driven Enviro Lab at the University, which is a leader and contributor to the Oxford Net Zero Tracker. So uh, thank you very much, Angel, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background, Angel, and your current work focus before we talk in hopefully some depth about net zero and other aspects of the uh, climate program? Absolutely. Well, I consider myself an interdisciplinary climate scholar. I leverage tools of data science, geospatial satellite remote sensing data, and policy analysis to understand both the extent of environmental and sustainability challenges like climate change and whether our efforts are effective in addressing them. So as an academic, it's kind of challenging to explain this, and that was kind of a mouthful. But um, when I was um, working in my first job, it was at a think tank called the World Resources Institute, or WRI. And I was in Washington, D.C., bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and they sent me to China And this was in the mid-2000s, and I was just blown away by the scale and the speed of transformation there, just from a physical built environment perspective, but also in terms of how quickly the Chinese government moved when there was political will to address problems like pollution and climate change. And so it was really there where I saw the appetite and need for more data-driven tools to guide policymaking. And so this is why I went back to do my PhD, and I wasn't satisfied by the idea of doing a PhD only in political science or sociology or economics. I really wanted an interdisciplinary perspective to tackling such a difficult, super wicked problem like climate change that really needs everyone from scientists to social scientists to behavioral economists to communicators to work together. And so it's a little hard to try to explain what I am or (laughs) where I come from, but I think that my background really just reflects the nature of the problem. So um, what I'm currently working on through the lab are several projects, and they're all kind of related to better understanding the role and the contributions of subnational actors, as well as private businesses to global climate mitigation. So this is recognizing that it's an all hands on deck approach. We need everyone from every aspect and sector of society to be working on climate change. And so a lot of my work is at the intersection of these increasingly localized and specific scales of action 
along with these larger mega trends in the environment, such as climate change and global warming, urbanization, and I think increasingly calls for equity and justice. And thrown into that mix of different projects and ideas and research themes, I'm also interested in how the role of next generation digital technologies can help us to improve transparency and accountability and the speed with which we need to tackle climate change. So that's kind of the nexus of things that I'm working on, and um, hopefully it makes sense. Fascinating. I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to touch and discuss some of those uh, areas in, 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 in more detail. A very full plate you have there, Angel. I'd, I'd like to set the scene a little bit at the beginning, maybe, mm-hmm. and just get a sense of what's on your mind. Clearly, we face uh, all kinds of interlocking environmental crises going on, and uh, People have different focuses, and I'm wondering what's on your mind in particular and keeping you awake. Yeah, this is a really great question. And I mean, we're kind of at the point right now in our daily lives and society where it's impossible to ignore climate change. I mean, I think when I started working on some of these issues almost 20 years ago, it was still very much in many people's minds, particularly Americans, an open debate. Is climate change actually happening? But I think right now we're at this tipping point very critically where we can't ignore the impacts of climate change anymore. So I think for me, the one issue that's keeping me up at night is is heat. And if you look at the temperature records and just following the headlines globally and locally, because in many parts of the world this summer, people were experiencing record high temperatures. June was the hottest month on record ever until we had July. (laughs) So, I mean, and this is now becoming the new normal where there are going to be more days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit on average. And I'm sorry, I don't know what it is in Celsius. Uh, But in the US, I mean, these represent extremely hot temperatures. For For many, it's actually deadly. And that's just become the new normal. And I think what's really worrisome about heat as a climate change and current issue is the fact that it's a silent killer. Extreme heat is actually far deadlier than other naturals, killing in the United States more than twice as people every single year as hurricanes and and tornadoes combined. So that's like such a surprising statistic to me. And yet so many people are not awake to its impacts and to the fact that heat is actually a public health crisis. And um, in the United States, it's actually not on the list of disasters eligible for assistance from the Federal Emergency Management Agency or FEMA. And that actually gives, there are laws that we have in the United States that the Stafford Act that gives FEMA the power to respond to emergencies and also determines what qualifies as one. And heat is not on that list. And so um, some of my research is trying to measure the extent of the heat problem in the United States using satellite remote sensing data. But then at the same time, uh, we've realized in doing this kind of widespread and comparable measurement using this kind of data, that heat is not impacting everybody the same way. And so we find that people of color and people who are living below the poverty line are exposed to much higher levels of heat than their white or wealthier counterparts. And I mean, to me, that's that's really troubling. But it's been really, really challenging for me to try to raise the alarm bells amongst policymakers. I think now I've been rejected for from 10 different grants <laughs> to try to um, get funding for this work. And I think it's because people just, they're just asleep at the wheel and they're not attuned and not paying attention to heat. And um, I've been working on this work. It was really the Black Lives Matters uh, movement that was happening. I was living in Singapore 
and feeling very hopeless and feeling like, what can I do on this important issue of environmental and climate justice? And, and that's where I was like, hey, I can actually leverage data and, and, and the modeling that we do on urban heat island to try to estimate these differences. And it was really shocking. We found that, that these patterns were persistent in 97% of major U.S. cities. And in our global analysis, looking at hundreds of cities across the world, we see the same disproportionate patterns. And yet, I can't get anyone to fund me to do this work. So I kind of just do it in my spare time. Well, that's very interesting because it, it would seem that a lot of the research seems to suggest that it was the global south that would witness the greatest uh, environmental impact of climate change and heat and so forth. And we've seen that in, in many cases. But what we've seen also, I guess, in recent months is uh, not just uh, in, in the global south, but in, in, in Europe and, and indeed in the United States. And I'm just wondering... Um, is the mood changing because um, we've seen such extreme weather? Uh, of course, there's been fires and so forth in Canada. And uh, but in general, the uh, headlines uh, in the newspapers regularly about, about these conditions, even if the connection with climate not always made. Yeah, I mean, I hope that's my hope <laughs> that people are going to start to draw these connections. Certainly, I recently was living in Asia for five years and moved back to my home region of the of the Southeast US to North Carolina. And this past summer, due to those wildfires that you mentioned in Canada, uh, we were getting really bad air pollution. So above the air quality index of 100. And that essentially s signifies hazardous air pollution. And I have small kids. And um, there were days where my son's preschool, he's three, they were not allowing him to go outside and play. And um, that was that was really surprising to me and, and many of my friends and colleagues who have never lived in Asia or an area where air pollution and air quality is a daily consideration. They were also saying, well, should I be wearing a mask? And they were writing me messages and, and asking me these questions. I was like, yes, absolutely. You should. This is incredibly dangerous air pollution. And um, so I think because climate change now cannot be ignored, it's no longer, as you said, a developing country problem where the impacts are being felt. It's actually in places like suburban North Carolina, where I was living, never thought, you know, I, I left Asia partly, you know, I lived in China also for many years, was so that my kids growing up, they wouldn't have to be exposed to such um, high levels of air pollution. And yet, um, it's it's now infiltrated the United States in a very real way. And it's just going to become more and more common. So I wrote a piece um, in Think Health, which is a foreign uh, affairs publication a couple of weeks ago, trying to make these connections and drawing the dots. You know, we now have global targets for climate change, but yet we don't have a global target for air pollution reduction. And yet the, the causes are, are the same. They're linked. It's fossil fuels. It's wildfires that are emitting and, and putting in lots of pollutants that are harmful for our, for human health into the atmosphere. And, so, and the fact that policymakers are not making these connections, there's not the sense of urgency. I'm hoping that, that the, the, one, um, uh, the one piece of optimism that comes out of these disasters is that people finally will become aware. I mean, I was just reading about the wildfires in Maui. I, a friend who lives um, in that area of Maui, her home was burned down. There was nothing left. I mean, she was showing me pictures of um, what was her house. And I mean, that's like a community that has lived there for generations and you have an influx of also people like her, herself that have moved there. And um, in this, the reports, people were, were still checking into hotels. <laughs> the fires were happening and smoke was in the air. I mean, it's just like, it's, you, cannot, you cannot ignore climate change anymore.
Yeah, I just read, a, I think, a recent email from is it Bill McKibben uh, talking about uh, living in, in Vermont and how he this felt like some kind of climate haven generally and uh, high altitude and so forth. But they've had mm-hmm. uh, very bad flooding and all kinds of issues related to that. Um, so, yes, uh, it, 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 tr- truly, it, it is a global uh, issue in that way. Now, now, but before we go on, also, I'd like to just get a sense of uh, what, what, if anything, gives rise to optimism what makes you optimistic when you look around i think as someone who works in climate change science and policy you have to be a naturally optimistic optimistic person to continue to work on this issue because it's incredibly depressing i mean there's just so much out there as we've already discussed that don't give rise to optimism you talked about flooding but then also i think about ocean temperatures in florida that were regularly over 100 degrees Fahrenheit this summer and leading to mass amounts of coral bleaching. I mean, anyone who studies oceans, I definitely give my hat off to them because it's incredibly depressing. Um, So, I mean, I guess I would like to look towards the latest scientific assessment by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the IPCC, the sixth assessment report, which I had the great fortune of being one of the contributing scientists to. And I specifically contributed to working group three on mitigation. So how can we actually reduce our impact on the climate? And actually, I think there was a lot of optimism in that working group. And it's it's very long. You know, we're talking about thousands of pages that were written, but we also read like even more tens of thousands of scientific literature to write that report. But um, so I, I do think it's worth at least going to the summary for policymakers if people who are listening have not yet read it, because I do actually think there's a lot of optimism there. Not only are there actual concrete numbers to talk about the falling costs of renewables and the fact that solar photovoltaic and wind power, both onshore and offshore, are much more cost competitive than they ever have been before. And so now in many parts of the world, it's actually cheaper to build a power plant that's powered by renewable energy as opposed to fossil fuels. So I think there's a lot of really great optimism there. I think one other chapter that is of particular note is chapter five on demand side responses. And this is the first time that there was actually a chapter in the IPCC that's talking about demand side. So what can we as citizens and consumers contribute to the problem to help solve it, as opposed to just thinking about supply side responses, like I just mentioned, powering electricity uh, with renewables. That's a supply side response. And what was really encouraging is these numbers that were included in the report talking about how across different sectors, from buildings to uh, power to transport uh, to food systems, humans, uh, individuals, we can cross uh, across these different sectors, reduce collectively 40 to 70 percent of emissions. And so that's through things like working from home and not necessarily commuting every single day to work. Or if you have to commute, trying a more low carbon option, such as taking public transportation or riding a bicycle or an electric bike or taking an electric vehicle. It includes switching to a more plant-based diet and choosing to fly less. So all of these different types of individual actions, when collected and summed together, can actually have a significant quantifiable um, impact on emissions. So I thought that that was really, really encouraging. And, And we're starting to see governments also wake up to this particular reality and potential as well. This emphasis on individuals is important, as you say, but surely some of the biggest and most important actors are, as you say, governments, but also uh, corporations uh, at, at various levels that really that uh, that's where we should be focused. And also on political change, on social political change that actually uh, it, it's uh, many governments aren't. Uh, and we talk about this 
we're in a moment we're looking at, at net zero and, and you can tell us mm-hmm. who's doing well and who's not, but really aren't uh, alert to this, uh, aren't uh, taking action and also are, are in the hands, many cases, of uh, particular uh, groups of uh fossil fuel lobbyists or so forth, but um, aren't taking action. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's an either or situation. It has to be it has to be both. It, it all everyone it has to be all of society tackling the problem. And so it's got to come from the top down. It's got to be governments that are also responding and setting strict regulations, taking their own responsibility to reduce emissions and simply not continue to subsidize fossil fuels because many governments continue to do that. And in the United States, we also have very political uh, and powerful lobbies from the fossil fuel um, industry. And so, yes, it has to, it, obviously the, the top down has to be there. But I think what I found encouraging in this work on the IPCC is also evidence because I think, you know, as a, as a teacher, as a professor, I, I teach classes on climate change and my students, they're young people and they're experiencing climate and eco anxiety. And they always raise their hand and they say, well, this seems like such an existential problem. And what can I really do about it? I mean, I feel like governments are not doing enough. And they're absolutely right. You know, I also was one of the contributors to the UN Environment Program's Emissions Gap Report, where we take annual stock of what governments are and are not doing. And that emissions gap has not closed since we started doing the report over a decade ago. It just continues to grow wider and wider. We're looking at the national government actions there, and they're not doing enough. So I think that that's absolutely critical. And you're right, like governments have to absolutely be doing something. But I think adding to that, and we need to give people optimism, we need to give them a sense of agency, because we are not going to be able to fill the gap left by national government action, if we're going to have any hope of, of trying to narrow that, that, um, that, that gulf between national government action and where we need emissions to go without individuals. And, you know, having in the United States context, them finally recognizing that through the Inflation Reduction Act, realizing that, Obama's um, executive order to try to regulate clean power uh, through the clean power plan um, power plants that wasn't going to work because the states uh, instantly after he was no longer president <laughs> repealed all of the um, state level action and so I think um, they they realized through the Inflation Reduction Act if we can actually incentivize firms and businesses and incentivize individuals by giving them subsidies and tax credits and incentives to try to do the right thing then that can also be a powerful motivator for action and try to fill in some of these gaps in action but that is in no way any substitute for national government regulation and my research in which we've actually tried to quantify okay and add up as you said the millions of of individuals and and we don't look at millions but we look at thousands of subnational governments and looking at thousands of corporate actions that it, it it's significant um you know we're talking about an additional one to two gigatons annually on top of what national governments are committed to in 2030. And that's about 4% of global emissions. So it may not seem like a lot, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg and uh, what we could actually quantify and measure. There's a lot more activity that's going on. And I think that this kind of data and quantification of the individual contribution is really important because people need to feel optimism. They need to feel empowered, like they can actually contribute to to the solution instead of just feeling like this is an existential problem and they have no agency to affect um, any change because it's all up to governments and powerful uh, lobbying interests and fossil fuel corporations, which, yeah, frankly, you know, we can't rely on them to change overnight. Yeah, it would be nice if we could snap our fingers and say, okay. (laughs) We have political options. We've got people who can uh, go out in the streets. We've got people who can lobby their local government. 
And I guess that's not particularly measurable. Is that something you've measured? The impact of local uh, individual action on on political systems? Yeah, I mean, I so we have looked at relationships um, where in, in countries, if there is more public support for climate change action, that tends to correlate with national governments that are also more proactive in their policies. So yeah, absolutely. There's a very close relationship there. I think you, but you do get some of these um, anomalies and these edge cases. I think United States is one of them where, and Australia, frankly, is another um, example of where you have strong bottom-up support from the public, but then because you have special interests, um, yeah, like coal and and oil lobbies that um, have outsized influence in uh, government, then you have um, uh, policies and politics that kind of lean the other way. But um, so there are a couple of these edge edge cases and anomalies. But I think for the large part, what the data show is that there is a strong relationship between public support for climate action and national regulation on the issue. Right. Now, I'd like to talk about net zero. This is an area where you've been working uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in wearing many hats, I know. So maybe just set the scene a little bit. Uh, if you can just uh, tell us what is net zero and how well established would you say it is as a set of goals or as a way of uh, yeah, managing the climate crisis? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is such a hot topic. And it's so controversial right now, because everybody has their own opinion about what actually constitutes net zero. But I'll just give you a definition from the science and from the IPCC, which in the early or I guess the late 1990s first established this concept of net zero referring to a balance between greenhouse gas emissions that are put into the atmosphere and removals. And so there are a lot of uh, sinks, natural sinks of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, including the oceans and trees and other land sources. And so when these natural sources are able to remove carbon from the atmosphere, and that can balance how much we as humans are putting back into the atmosphere, that results in no net increase in the amount of greenhouse gases. And so that's where you get this idea of net zero. So it's quite distinct from zero emissions, for example, which means no emissions. Um, Net zero allows for and recognizes the fact that there will always be some level of greenhouse gas emissions being emitted. And that's simply also because of the carbon cycle. Um, And we are, as humans, are emitting CO2 every time we breathe. But then um, that cycle is obviously balanced by by natural sources and or natural sinks that can balance the amount that we're putting back into the atmosphere. Do you think net zero is an effective goal to deal with the climate crisis? Um, there have been criticisms uh, on a number of fronts that um, it basically takes the emphasis away from carbon emissions and mm-hmm. foster an over-reliance on carbon removal, for example. And uh, Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. guess that the idea is that also this is something that can be uh, gained by corporations, by uh, some jiggery pokery and so forth. And we don't quite know what's going <laughs> on and the, 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 the carbon offset market in Africa and so forth like that. People have concerns about that. Absolutely. I think they're they're rightfully concerned about net zero. And this is such a great question. And just trying to unpack, is net zero an effective goal or an effective way to deal with the climate crisis. I think there are many different ways to look at it. I think from a science scientific perspective, I think that's also a lot more controversial than people like to acknowledge. Because even though the IPCC established this goal for net zero, and then it was adopted by all parties to the Paris Agreement in 2015 as a way to try to limit global temperature rise well below 2 degrees Celsius or 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, 
that still only gives us, even if we reach net zero emissions by mid-century, that still only gives us about a two-thirds chance of actually achieving that goal. And because there's a lot of uncertainty that's associated with emissions levels and the relationship with temperature rise. And so we can go back to scientist um, Eunice Foote uh, Newton, who is who was one of the first to establish this relationship between CO2 emissions and temperatures. But um, still, there are so many different complexities in the climate system and different feedback loops where scientists don't actually really know 100% for sure whether or not net zero emissions by mid-century will actually help us contain global temperature rise within 1.5 degrees Celsius. And as someone who works for the data, who, who, excuse me, as someone who works with the data, I have to say that it's not looking good. I mean, we've already globally surpassed 1.1 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And I was looking at some of the Berkeley Earth data for North America the other day, and we've already on average in North America exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so, I mean, I think then that suggests that net zero by 2050 is not going to be enough if we overshoot. And so that's what a lot of the new scenarios and models are, are trying to assess. Can we overshoot that particular net zero goal? And then somehow through more removals and trying to drive down emissions even more, can we try to balance that out? I think that's still an open question. So um, I will say from a policy framing perspective, having one common goal and something as catchy, I mean, let's just face it, net zero, that's like very catchy. It's, it's, it's become the new norm within both business and policy communities that this is what everyone should be striving towards. So I think there is utility and it has been really effective as establishing a norm. So a common goal that we should all be working towards. So I think that, that we've seen in policy circles and in, um, in the business community, it's been incredibly useful in just motivating and coordinating and aligning people on action. Whereas before it was much more complicated before the IPCC said, Oh, 80% reduction emissions below 2005 levels by 2050. I mean, who, who remembers that? But Besides like me, right? <laughs> like it's yes. like incredibly complicated. But if you just say net zero, then people can have, even if it's incorrect in terms of their understanding of what exactly that means, at least people can can recognize those two words and start to figure out how to align. Um, but I think all of the problems that you mentioned in terms of, well, what exactly does it mean? Does it actually mean zero emissions or can we offset by investing in, uh, in forests or in... Um, other types of natural sinks and other carbon removal projects or technological solutions like direct air capture and carbon capture and sequestration, that is where it gets really sticky and why there have been a lot of folks, particularly in the policy analytical community who have said actually net zero could be used as a shield for greenwashing. So yeah, we can definitely dive into that more. Excellent. Yes. Cause like, I'd like to get a sense of the research that you've done, uh, both at uh, the Data Driven Lab and the work uh, connected with the Oxford Net Zero, to get a mm -hmm. sense of uh, how you're assessing uh, how, how these targets have been set, how realistic they are, and how how uh, different organisations and governments are proceeding on their journey. So, can you maybe just talk a little bit about that and uh, to what extent you've, you've been able to get a good picture of the state of play? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, my group is one of the four co-leads of the Net Zero Tracker. And this is an online tool that tracks decarbonization efforts of more than 4,000 entities. So we include countries, regional governments, so talking about large states like California and large cities above a population threshold of 250,000, 
and the Forbes 2000 publicly traded companies. So the website is zerotracker.net. And um, we launched, I guess now it's been about two and a half years. So it's a pretty new project, but we're the only effort that tries across different entities from countries all the way down to companies develop a consistent approach to evaluating the decarbonization goals and the net zero efforts of these different actors. So we're looking at who has set a net zero target and who has not, because that's also equally important to know who is not taking action. And then we developed a scorecard to evaluate those particular net zero efforts to understand whether or not they are robust and credible. So these are things like looking to see whether or not a country has actually developed a law or policy that is backed by some type of binding mechanism to actually implement a net zero target. If it's a company, do they have a plan in place that articulates how exactly they're going to achieve net zero? Does it rely on offsets, for example? Does it cover all emissions, both direct emissions? And then for companies, what's equally important are supply chain emissions. Um, are there near-term goals that signify that the particular entity is actually serious about trying to reduce its impact on climate change? Because it's easy for a mayor, for a governor, or for a company CEO to say, yeah, I'll commit to carbon neutrality by 2050. And then in five or 10 years, they're probably not going to be in the decision-making seat to actually implement that target. So near-term action is an incredibly important marker of integrity. And then we also want to know who is making progress on delivering their pledges and who is not. And uh, because we plan and we've been, we collect data on a continuous basis, we can then start to develop a global picture of how these targets are evolving and whether or not we're seeing credibility improve in some sectors or in some regions and where um, we might see some convergence among both private sector actions and policies and national government regulation. Before we discuss the overview of the different, uh, I guess, different entities, presumably uh, some of this is uh, easier to do than in, in some areas than others. The, the data, the proxies and so forth, you feel are more accurate. You feel like you've got a better grip, shall we say, on the data. Uh, any general comments to say about with respect to different entities where you feel most confident or or, or is it pretty much across the board that you would say that you, you, you feel confident in the, in the figures that you've got? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, yeah, it's it's this has been kind of a journey too to also determine what are the right data sources to be evaluating. And it's not perfect by any means. And we're constantly evolving. And one of the innovations that I'm most excited about, actually in September at New York Climate Week, we're going to be launching a pilot AI-driven large language model interface for the Net Zero Tracker called Chat Net Zero. Yes, we're also jumping on the GPT train, but we think that this represents a huge innovation in how we might improve data discoverability to widen our search of relevant documents and to help to uncover new data sources and relationships and try to improve also the real-time nature of what we're doing. Because right now, we use a combination of automated machine learning-based web scraping to collect relevant documents, and then an army of volunteers at Oxford. And now we've expanded globally to so anyone can do the training. They can also become a certified net zero volunteer to then read through and pour through all these documents to try to determine the credibility of different action. And it's not easy. I mean, a lot of these companies that we're evaluating, large multinational companies, we're talking about Amazons and Nestle's and Maersk. I mean, they 
have tons of resources to hire very sophisticated wordsmiths and communication consultants and strategists to try to make their plans sound very credible and very robust. And so it's taken a lot of our own training and expertise to really parse out, okay, what exactly does this mean? Or we have to read the footnotes very closely to determine, okay, well, what are they actually saying? What are they actually including? Because I mean, it's very easy. Like Shell, for example, in the Netherlands, they're being sued right now because they made claims of going net zero. And then it turns out when you start to dive into the details, they're not actually including downstream product use emissions in their uh, commitment. And that's where all their emissions are coming from. It's not coming from their exec sitting in their their offices, uh, working on their computers and and turning on the lights and air con. I mean, that's just not where their emissions are coming from. As long as they they reduce their travel budget. (laughs) Right, exactly. I mean, it's just absurd. And there's just so much of this going on. So yes, I would say that... um, the level of obfuscation and the potential for greenwashing, we see actually a lot of that happening amongst the corporates and for the fossil fuel companies on the net zero tracker, we, we evaluate more than 70 of them. And, um, unfortunately not a single one of them are actually, um, credible in their net zero, um, efforts. And so, I mean, I think that that's something that, um, signifies, yeah, exactly the extent of the problem and, and how much greenwashing is going on. Um, I will say that um, for countries, it's a little bit easier and it, it, it to, to track because you can, you know, there there are established ways in which countries publish various laws and policy documents. The London School of Economics they have a whole climate laws and policies database where they're collecting this kind of information on climate laws and policies. So that's been a great resource for us to validate and cross check. And and certainly we have seen that since we launched the net zero tracker that um, more and more countries every single year. So now we're at 149 countries, which includes the EU and Taiwan. And this is up from 124 countries that we were tracking that made that had committed to some form of net zero in December of 2020. So we're saying that there has been a lot of improvement in the number of countries. So now it's, it's virtually the entire global economy, 92% of, of global GDP and 88% of global emissions and 89% of the global population. And particularly to this data question, we've seen that the, the documents, the legislation and policy documents that are enshrining country level net zero targets, this has in- increased substantially in the last two and a half years that we've done the net zero tracker. So when we started, we could only find legislation and policy documents supporting less than 10% of country declarations that they were going to do something on net zero. And that's now increased to 75%. So more than 70 countries now have net zero targets either enshrined in legislation or outlined as a goal in policy documents that we can then verify. So I, so I think that that part is pretty encouraging. And, and as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, that's absolutely essential for setting that top level regulatory signal that this is something that as a nation, governments are committed to. But um, when you start to then go to lower levels of jurisdiction and administration, particularly cities, many cities have not published net zero plans. A lot of them have not um, committed to net zero. And I think it just reflects the varying levels of capacity and resources that subnational governments may have. And so it, it is really very, very to answer your question in terms of how quality um, it, it, different uh, uh, entities are pledging these efforts and also the types of information that we can get and how easy it is to access. And of course, this is a huge limitation. We're limited to English language documents. And so this is another piece where I think the AI component can really help because that will just unlock a whole other universe, uh, particularly for non-English 
speaking um, countries of where we can try to get even more improved and targeted data. Right. Very interesting. Just one more technical question before we go into maybe an overview of the overall findings and so forth. How do you balance the question of emissions versus carbon removal? At what point, um, how do you weigh that up? Uh, At what point is it legitimate uh, in your view to uh, uh, focus on carbon removal uh, rather than actually reducing emissions? And how do you kind of think about that, 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 that decision? This is a great and an absolutely critical question. And I'm just going to represent my own personal view because actually within the Net Zero Tracker team, we don't have the same opinion. And so that just tells you if a bunch of experts who are doing this type of scoring and analysis cannot agree, that just tells you how controversial and contested this concept of removals and carbon removals actually is within this debate. And so there are some people, some scientists who say we cannot have any carbon removal, any entity, any company, any government that suggests carbon removal is basically just not credible and net zero. And so it's it's an exercise in futility. Like why even say that you're going to pledge net zero if you can't reduce your emissions all the way to zero. So I wouldn't say that I'm in that um, uh, bucket of um, having this very hard line on on removals. But then I think if at the other end of the spectrum, you have some companies that are basically making these net zero pledges and saying, oh, yeah, we're going to we're going to try to reduce our emissions, but then we're going to make up for what we can't reduce through offsets. And then they don't even include supply chain emissions or what we otherwise refer to as scope three emissions into that particular bucket. And, and, you know, I definitely think that that's not as credible. That's not credible, really. And so I, I would say I kind of fall somewhere in the middle where I do think that it's absolutely important for any entity, whether you're a government or a firm to try to reduce your emissions as much as possible to zero. So I mentioned my first job at WRI, it was actually working on the greenhouse gas protocol that has developed the corporate and organizational standard for greenhouse gas accounting or reporting. So I did a lot of work on these protocols and these tools and trying to develop these guidances and working with companies, particularly in developing countries on developing their inventory. So I know how challenging it can be, but it's an absolutely critical exercise to identifying where are your major emission sources and where are there possibilities and opportunities to reduce them. And I definitely think that a lot of companies can do a lot in terms of just trying to reduce their emissions as much as possible, particularly in uh, in, in their um, scope one emissions or direct emissions. Um, and then I think then in in cases where it's not possible. So for a lot of different entities, like I think about universities and and my university back home, where they set a goal initially to go carbon neutral by 2020, and then realize that they're purchasing electricity from a utility that's a regional utility, and they have no actual jurisdictional or administrative control over decisions they make. And so then very quickly, they had to step back from that 2020 um, goal because they realized they didn't have any administrative power. So I do think in those kinds of situations, then looking into, well, can I actually purchase re- credible renewable electricity um, uh, right, renewable electricity certificates, or can I try to arrange some purchase power agreements, which large companies like Google and has has done for years uh, to try to 
you know, lock in um, power providers into producing uh, renewable and green electricity and lock them in so that they have a stable contract and, and they have some type of um, certainty to, to, to weather any particular fluctuations and risk. So these kinds of things, I think, can be really powerful in um, establishing a market signal for more renewable electricity generation, but then also recognizing that, um, yeah, that you're a significant contributor to the problem if you have a footprint as big as as Google. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle where I do think it's incredibly critical to credibility of net zero to try to reduce your emissions as much as possible to zero, but then recognizing that that's not going to be possible for everybody to get to, to all the way to zero, particularly in hard to abate sectors. So I used to work a lot with Chinese cement companies and just the process of building cement, even though they're now coming up with carbon neutral cement, but just uh, the process of, of calcination to produce cement releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So there are some of these industrial processes that um, necessarily uh, produce greenhouse gas emissions. And so in those cases, iron and steel, cement, it might be necessary to look at carbon removal technologies. And, you know, many of these scenarios that we've been talking about in the IPCC, they build into their assumptions that we're going to have some level of carbon removal, technological carbon removal, whether it's uh, bioenergy combined with carbon capture. So actually through chemical reactions, removing some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then sequestering that underground um, or direct air capture. So there's a couple of these projects. It's now you know, hugely expensive, somewhere in the order of two to three hundred dollars per ton of CO2 removed from these types of technologies. But if you do have some simultaneous investment, it's expected that those costs will come down. So I think they're, they're a combination. I think where I wouldn't be supportive of removals is like, you know, some of these um, shadier and unverified uh, uh, projects where they're investing in uh, forests in California, for example, or in northern Ca- or you know in, in south um, western Canada, where they're prone to wildfires, um, and there have been a couple of these these projects that have come. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. No, I, I just wondered if you could come back to maybe that the in in your model how you assess whether or not a company is doing enough or has enough focus on reducing emissions before they can start looking at removals or whether when they're building assumptions about setting goals, which will say to what extent they're going to balance emissions versus removals. How do you deal with that? Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really uh, problematic because we're going and we're relying primarily on self-reported data. And that's like a huge assumption in all of this. We're relying on companies producing their corporate social responsibility reports or reporting to disclosure platforms like CDP. And, and I think that's also part of the problem because, of course, if you're filling out these types of reports, you have all the incentive to make yourself look as good as possible. And so I think that's also part of the problem. So what we do in the tracker is that we're looking for things like, okay, have they set a uh, target for near-term action that is actually credible? So we can actually plot out. So let's say that they've committed to a net zero target by 2050, and we can look at their reported baseline emissions and their current emissions, you know, because they have to report ideally on an annual basis to CDP what their annual emissions are. So then we can actually map out that trajectory. And then we can actually determine based on even just a simple linear assumption to that reduction uh, carbon neutral target by mid-century, what should like an interim target 
somewhere 2030, what should that look like? And then we can see whether or not they're above or below. So we've done that in some of our research. We've, we've done an annual series of reports called Global Climate Action from Cities, Regions, and Companies. I'm happy to share these with you after. And if there's a website for your podcast, you can refer people to this. So we can actually see, okay, does the ambition that they're pledging for net zero, does it actually align with what they're actually doing by way of annual reductions and do that kind of comparison. So that that's one way. So that's a way to gauge credibility because if they say, oh yeah, we're going carbon neutral and then you look at their near-term action and they're not anywhere near to where they need to be to actually meet those targets in a reasonable time frame, then that's one red flag right there. Or if they're completely lacking the interim target and they have no targets for near-term action and they're not reporting any immediate reductions, I think that's another red flag that they're not actually doing anything. Um, and then I think looking at different emission scopes. So if they're saying, like, again, we take the example of a fossil fuel company or even an investor, and they're only looking at their scope one emissions or scope two emissions from electricity, then that's also a huge red flag because it's very clear that if they're in a lot of these companies, this is an area where we're seeing in the disclosure reports that many companies are not doing an adequate job of actually quantifying and reporting scope three emissions. If they're not reporting any of that data, that's also a huge red flag that they're probably not credible in what they're doing on net zero. So these are the different things that we look at. Um, And then we also do disaggregate and say, okay, are they looking at land-based offsets? Are they looking at some type of technology that's unproven or that's incredibly expensive or is not to market or not to scale? You know, those are a lot less credible. But for the most part, we're seeing that most companies, if they're looking at offsets, they're talking about renewable electricity production. And so a lot of them they actually consider that insetting as opposed to offsetting because it's done within site or within their operational boundary or they're um, also, yeah. It, or if they're within scope three, you know, are they, are they trying to do some of these land-based um, investments in areas that are prone to wildfires or deforestation pressures where it's not as credible or governance is not as strong, or there might be illegal logging or other types of pressures that may make those less credible. So um, those are the, all, all the different things. Yeah. Or are those offsets actually backed by some type of credible standard? You know, there are different verification like Vera and um, Gold Standard. These are just two of the voluntary standards. But, you know, a lot of a lot of people, they fall on the side of there shouldn't be any type of offsetting. And so why pledge net zero if you're going to be relying on some of these offsets? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Can you maybe now just give a little bit of an overview of the findings? Uh, what what would you say is the state of play? Maybe uh, what, what's, what the best way of presenting as an overview uh, where where we are and, and what, what, what the tracker has shown? Yeah, absolutely. So we um, have developed several stock take reports. The latest was in June of 2023, and I don't have all the numbers off the top of my head, so I I think, but I'll just give like a general overview. And I think for people, it's worthwhile going to that report and looking at some of the more specifics. It's a very easily digestible report. Um, I would say, number one, it's clear from all the numbers, and now this is the third stock take report that we've published in the last three years since 2020. And I think it's very clear that net zero is an established norm. And I think that that the data from countries is a very strong signal in terms of now, I mean, 149 countries, that's quite significant. That's nearly every country um, has made some type of pledge or target for, for net zero, including 19 members of the G20. And um, yeah, I, I gave those numbers earlier about what percentage of global GDP and population is covered. Um, I think we're seeing more companies are also, and these again are only publicly traded companies, more companies have, have increased in terms of their net zero pledges. Um, but some national governments, that's one area that's, that's lagging, unfortunately. So we're not seeing as many 
cities and states and regions step up to the plate and also commit to carbon neutrality. Um, yeah, so I would say that that overall we're seeing some improvement just in terms of like broad broad picture trends, and uh, inc- increasingly we're seeing on the country scale that more of the net zero pledges are being backed by legislation, which I think is an incredibly positive signal. Um, but there are some areas. So for example, we are planning on developing a fossil fuel based indicator to be released later this fall. That's looking to see whether or not fossil fuel companies are actually developing transition plans. And when we looked in our June stock take report, what we found is that not a single of the hundred or so fossil fuel companies on the net zero tracker have actually published a credible or any transition plan. So I think that's also really worrisome if we're talking about credibility and robustness of these pledges. And then I think also what's worrisome is just the fact that we're not seeing that much improvement in terms of some national governments um, stepping up to the plate. And, and we know that cities and states, California is always like one of these states that's lauded as being the poster child for subnational climate action. So I think that's also worrisome because with national governments, we want to see that there's implementation at the, at the, at the level of where um, decisions are often made and policies are often implemented. And those are uh, increasingly in federal systems at the state and also the local levels. So what would kind of best behavior or uh, best in class look like when it comes to, as you say, subnational entities? Yeah, that's um, a really great question. I think that there are a couple of, of indicators um, that uh, are, are out there to indicate credibility and robustness. And so as we as we mentioned, having some uh, targets for near-term action, so interim targets, having clear plans and actions for reducing emissions and not just saying that we're going to offset or we're going to let our emissions um, continue to grow and then we'll, at, at, to some certain point, and then we'll talk about how to reduce after that, having actually clear actionable steps for reducing emissions from major sources if um, that are relevant to a particular um, company or some national government's um, footprint. I think that's also really critical. Um, not too reliant on offsets. And so having that balance where it's very clear that emissions are getting reduced as much as possible to zero. And then um, I think the legislation piece or having some type of policy or binding law that would suggest that that implementation of a particular net zero pledge is is actually going to happen. And then I think also including, and, and this is what I mentioned earlier, but making sure that out of boundary for subnational governments or supply chain emissions, these are emissions otherwise known as scope three are also included. And so those are increasingly critical for um, many subnational governments. Like I think about Portland that developed a consumption emissions inventory a couple of years ago, and they found that two thirds of their overall emissions were actually out of boundary emissions. And so that's incredibly um, challenging for many companies and subnational governments to actually do this type of quantification. But I think if the um, suppliers and or the, cu- the customers um, actually pressure suppliers and subnational governments through procurement policies actually demand that their suppliers provide this type of data and transparency, I think that could really help improve the scope three and out of boundary emissions landscape, because it's absolutely criti- critical for a credible net zero target to address these emissions. 
Yeah, very interesting. And can, can I ask, uh, what, what's at stake? Uh, well, if if, if uh, any of these entities don't uh, achieve uh, their net zero pledges or don't or aren't serious about them, but one way or another, don't actually uh, make progress or deliver on them. And I'm just wondering, in in that context, what impact would you say that the net zero tracker has and would like to have over time in terms of when your results come out and 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 and, and how people will respond to the the clear data on how different entities are performing? From the tracker perspective, we have a stoplight rating approach. So, and this has also been criticized and people in, but, you know, we wanted an easy to communicate way of trying to signal the different levels of credibility associated with, with different actors um, efforts. And so, yeah, I mean, I think um, if we do observe and, and we're constantly updating this data over time. So if we do observe that there is something that's happening where it's not credible, we will absolutely downgrade an entity's um, scoring. And so if they were yellow or green before, and then we notice that something is um, not credible, then yeah, absolutely, they'll get downgraded and they'll get called out. So one of our leads in this project, the New Climate Institute, they've developed this series of very impactful reports called the Corporate Climate Responsibility Monitor. They've done two of these reports. The first report looked at 25 of the largest companies including Amazon and um, Google and uh, Ikea, which actually funds a lot of our work on non-state climate action. And so no one is immune to this type of uh, scrutiny. And it was really, I think, quite damning. I mean, really, they found that no one, not a single one of these companies, and these companies are constantly uh, being, uh, I think, um, touted as, as being some of the leaders in the climate responsibility space. And we found that, you know, they found that that really no one is doing anything uh, credible when it comes to net zero. And so I think definitely... Uh, they were alarmed by the findings of this report and also on the tracker. We're starting this campaign where we're calling out different companies for not pledging net zero or not doing it in a very credible way on, in, in our social media channels as a way to raise awareness and to galvanize public support. Because I think that this is, in, our, in terms of our theory of change, this is what we hope that we can do is to make this data transparent and then also to try to parse um, what credibility really means in the net zero space. Because as I mentioned very early in the conversation, it's very confusing. There was a Pew survey that was done in the US um, very recently, and it found that two thirds of Americans think that uh, continued use of fossil fuels is compatible with net zero. I mean, that just tells you the amount of misinformation and the amount of confusion that's out there on net zero. People don't really know what it means and what's really credible. And so we're trying to be that bridge and that go-between to try to parse that signal and to make it really clear what companies and what different governments are doing so they can use that information to advocate for stronger and more robust action. And I think it's really hard because not everybody knows where to get the data, can get access to the information. And even if they do have access to the information, it requires a lot of expert knowledge to really parse through what a lot of these companies are saying. Because as I mentioned, they are very sophisticated in their communication and their management consultancy um, resources to be able to really put a very shiny, glossy sheen on net zero, which may not be backed by any substance. Yeah, such important work, as you say, so difficult to get a clear picture and then to try and uh, put it all together and get an overview and so forth. And over time, I guess you just learn and get better algorithms, get better information. And I just maybe that uh, brings me to maybe a final question, if I might, Angel, which is about yeah. uh, what potential you see in terms of the AI, uh, well, I guess what they call revolution, but just the new, new, new technologies. How will this help? Uh, will this change the, 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 the landscape a little bit in terms of reporting, at least? 
I'm so glad you asked this question because, as I mentioned, we're planning on piloting ChatNet Zero to try to leverage this new wave of AI and, yeah, particularly generative AI that is really, I think, has been completely game-changing in how we interact and obtain information. And it's just been so hugely already transformative, um, I think, for, for good and bad. I think on one side, it's giving us unparalleled access to interact with information and to increase our knowledge on topics like climate change and net zero. But I think on the other hand, because tools like ChatGPT and BARD are mining the entire universe of data, it can potentially lead to misinformation because we know that these chatbots and AI are prone to hallucination. Exactly. And that's a real problem. And so that's one thing that we're trying to do with ChatNet Zero because we have spent the last several years collecting very specific documents and using our volunteers and our machine algorithms to parse out relevant information and to have experts verify it we now have a labeled data set that we can use to train this type of model to really produce highly accurate results. So I think there's a huge potential in allowing us to increase the speed with which we do our work, but then to also be a public good resource to help cut through some of the noise. I think there, I have a fear that people are going to go to BARD and ChatGPT to try to get information on how credible is this company's net zero targets and then get and, and have the potential to be misinformed. And that's a very real and probable likelihood right now. Uh, and so that's why I just said to my colleagues, my colleagues 100% supported me. They said, Angel, you just have to do this. I had no money for this. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to use some of my own money to just do this, just to develop this pilot and, and hope that people will come and support it because I think it's incredibly important. You know, We don't have any time to waste to try to let these companies trick us and to greenwash into thinking that they're doing something on climate change when they clearly can all be doing more. And so we need to we need to have every tool in our arsenal to be able to pressure these companies and governments. And we can't do that if we don't know what they're doing in, in a transparent and um, credible way. So that's, that's where I think the AI revolution can really help. That's such an important initiative and such an important and exciting development, I would say. And I wish you the very best with that. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time today and uh, uh, the clarity and uh, for, for explaining uh, intricate uh, data analysis <laughs> and research that you have to do that uh, uh, and, and highlights how challenging that is just for an individual on their own to try and set out and try and make sense of this all. So thank you for that. And I wish you the very best with your ongoing work angel thank you really appreciate you having me just as 50 years ago when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons today the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels support dependent economies workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels ensure 100 percent access to renewable energy globally And importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at fossilfueltreaty.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 